Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 13, 2019, and my guest is writer and management consultant Venkatesh Rao, founder and editor-in-chief of Ribbon Farm. Our topic for today is a piece from his newsletter about the seductive nature of our devices and social media, and it is called Against Walden Ponding. Against Walden Ponding. Venkat, welcome to EconTalk. Wait to be here, Russ. Thanks for having me on. So what do you mean by Walden Ponding, which is a phrase I don't think it's going to catch on, but I loved it. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. I think it's already caught on, at least in my circles. Excellent. Um, I did a little Twitter poll, and uh, about one third of the people in my feed uh, in my feed had heard of it from me, but a bunch of people had heard it like with, not from me. So that's a good measure of inception in the yeah. zeitgeist. Um, uh, but yeah, it started like most things do with me these days as. Um, I don't know, a gentle insult to troll some of my friends in tech who I think act a little too, I don't know, solemn and self-serious about the threat of um, digital devices hacking our brains. So it started out as an insult. Then I did a little Twitter thread on it and realized I meant it more seriously than I was um, admitting to myself. Then it turned into a newsletter. Then I did another sort of part two. And since then, I've been sort of exploring the concept all over the place on Twitter and other places. So the basic idea is um, you've got this trend of uh, people advocating some sort of retreat from digital media. And of course, uh, Walden Ponding is a reference to Thoreau's Walden. So the idea of um, not necessarily literally retreating to a log cabin in the woods to meditate, though a lot of people actually do some literal version of that, but somewhere on the spectrum of being very online to being completely offline um, by Walden Pond, any measure of retreat along that axis is what I call Walden Ponding. And the thesis I've been sort of developing is sort of a critical thesis um, advocating against that, where I argue that Walden Ponding is actually a bad thing and it's sort of a misframing of a problem. It's the wrong response to the whatever is going on there. And uh, there's more effective ways of engaging with digital technology. Yeah, I want to read an excerpt from the your, your uh, I'm going to call it an essay. It's a, it's a set of bullet points, really, a numbered set of, of points that tie together. But uh, you say... The crude caricature, you're talking about Walden Ponding, the crude caricature is smash your smartphone and go live in a log cabin to reclaim your attention and your life for being hacked by evil social media platforms. And then you go on. It's less of a caricature than you might think. In an event I was just at, the opening keynote featured a guy who's literally done just that. And I know at least half a dozen people who have executed a hard Walden Ponding plan with varying degrees of literal fidelity. A great many more have implemented a sort of soft Walden Ponding marked by digital retreat aided by various amputation tools that sever or loosen your connection to digital prosthetics, but no log cabin. Uh, close quote. So, you know, 
you're not literally against uh, stepping back from some technology sometimes. So we should get that straight right from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So it's almost um, a critique of uh, what you might say has become a religious doctrine around what's really just a practical matter of, on the one hand, engineering um, design evolution on the part of tech companies and on the part of users just getting used to a new medium and uh, sort of swinging back and forth on the pendulum a few times before finding sort of a happy medium. Uh, And I go back to you know, the history of technologies, and it happens with boring predictability that you have radio and you have a generation complaining that radio is ruining our brains. You have TV, people complaining that TV is ruining our brains. You have video games, you have the same complaints, right? And it goes back to uh, Plato and Phaedrus and him talking about writing having the same problem of, uh, you know, your atrophying your memory by using this uh, weird new medium called writing to preserve your thoughts. So the complaint pattern is not new. Neither is um, this sort of uh, advocacy of retreat. And it's not that the uh, those who advocate the retreat are unaware of this long history, right? So Nick Carr, who I think inaugurated this particular trend when he wrote The Shallows almost a decade ago, he actually quotes uh, Plato and Phaedrus and says, all right, still, this time it's different. Google is making us stupid. So they're aware of the tradition, but somehow they think it's different this time, which is sort of a common uh, pattern in these things. Uh, so uh, I would say when you approach this as a practical matter, not as a religious one, it's actually not that hard. It's uh, There are features available. You can put your phone into dark mode. You can um, you know, build habits around other information consumption. The diagram I included in my thread has a little turnpike type uh, visualization of, on the one hand, you have the x-axis of uh, increasing latency of information consumption, and on the y-axis, you have the abstraction with which you consume inf- information. So you might have something like a book that's written several years after something important has happened, so it's several years lagging, but because it's able to go deep and analyze at higher levels of abstraction, it goes up on the uh, y-axis as well. So that's one extreme. And on the other extreme, you have a real life sense of what's going on on Twitter today and live sense of, uh, uh, you know, sophisticated conversations happening. So it's not all shit posting. So if you're able to go up and down that turnpike to suit your needs, you will sort of meet your informational needs. And I think what ends up happening when these uh, people react against people doing just that, making their own decisions on where to be along that axis and how much attention to allocate on each part, they make the mistake of, uh, I think they make three mistakes. The first is they overestimate their own agency as designers of the mechanisms. So you have, uh, for example, Tristan Harris and Nir Eyal, I don't know how to say his name, but both um, began their careers as actual designers of web technology. Yeah, that's that's Nir Eyal, and he's coming to Econ Talks in in a couple months. Absolutely. So you, you you should ask him about this stuff. And I think both are great people, very thoughtful people. They've seen the design side of this stuff. They've actually worked on, you know, hacking attention type technologies with tech companies. And then they've kind of had almost like a finding religion moment where they've gone to the other side and sort of uh, in their mind recognized sort of the dark side of 
this technology and they're now in this sort of evangelical mode where some of it almost sounds like you know an AA program where it's like um, you have to admit sure. you're powerless uh, and the godlike technology has hacked your attention and you have to admit that there's a higher power and you're powerless. I get a very AA vibe from it. And I think so that's one mistake they make. Just because they've been involved in the design of this sort of um, attention manipulation technologies, they overestimate the actual importance of that element of the puzzle. The second thing they do is they underestimate the actual level of agency we as users bring to our information consumption choices. Um, and I don't think they actually stop to think too hard about the what I think is the null hypothesis here, which is that if I'm spending, say, 50% of my time shitposting on Twitter, 30% writing you know, random little threads on newsletters, and only, say, 5% working on quote-unquote big, serious, solemn papers and books, that's actually an attention allocation I might want. If I'm watching five hours of TV a day, that's an attention allocation I might want. So I think they underestimate um, the degree to which there is actually conscious agency here and they attribute too much to, you know, the evil UI designers. And the third thing that I think um, is part of their big mistake is they don't realize the extent to which the behaviors we are now experimenting with across the board are actually a response to a much bigger thing, namely the information environment has in fact radically shifted. So it's not just a matter of like, you know, uh, clever UI designers are de designing infinite scrolling uh, patterns with sub-microsecond um, you know, uh, insertions into the attention loop. It is actually genuinely the case that several orders of magnitude more information has come online and our old ways of processing information that were sort of evolved in scarcity environments, they just don't work anymore. So everything we are trying from being like, you know, Gonzo present in live Twitter feeds all the way to the other end where you retreat to a log cabin and only read ancient Greek classics. This entire spectrum of uh, experimentation represents very useful and important um, you know, evolutionary adaptation experiments. And you kind of have to let these things run and figure out what works. So part of that, let me, let me, let me try to summarize that in, in some of the... Um Ways we've been talking on on the, about these topics here recently on Econ Talk. So one issue is this addictive question, and you're suggesting that some of that is overrated in terms of how addictive they can make it. And the second is we have some control over it. Obviously, I, I think the question on that is is whether we get control of it by taking it off our smartphone, a particular app that we have trouble not going to all the time, uh, versus say. Uh, regulating these these companies, and listeners know I'm a big fan of letting cultural response to this happen. And you're making the I think very relevant point that this is such an early uh, change. The idea that that we're going to just stay as we are in how we interact with this technology is, is absurd. We're we're going to change in all kinds of ways, and we need some time to do that. And I think that's that's uh, that's very wise. The deeper point, of course, also you make is that. Uh, people enjoy these things. We like these things. It's fun. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not addiction. It, that's just a word to vilify it, and, and a, it's a puritanical concept to, to make it sound wicked or evil. Uh, the third point, which I would also react to about longer, deeper dives into deeper ideas, um, the question is whether that, that seems to have gotten harder 
I know for me, I'm 64, um, and maybe I'm just getting older, but my ability to sit with a text without interrupting it with email checking, Twitter checking, uh, and other types of distraction seems to have changed. Now, that could be because I haven't reacted correctly or fully to this new information stream. Uh, it could be, though, that there's, there is something here to be concerned about. Uh, the question is, what should we do about that concern? And I, and I think there's a, um, the final point I want to add, add on to that you make, I think, is, is the real, in many ways, the punchline. We have this cornucopia, this incredible profusion of stimulus. Some of it is very superficial and just a little dopamine hit of I got another follower. Uh, some of it is superficial, as you point out, because it's gossip about somebody's uh, habits online. There, uh, there's some shortcoming that people want to wave around. That feels a lot like a waste of time. Uh, but if we're careful, that's not the way we spend most of our time on Twitter. It's not the way we spend most of our time on social media. It's not the way we spend most of our time online. There's such extraordinary riches up and down the line of of depth versus superficial, which is the, one of the ways of thinking of the axis that you're describing. And um, it's a glorious time to be alive. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, moaning and <laughs> moaning and complaining about how horrible it is, is, um, you know, it's a form of virtue signaling, obviously. It's, you know, it's part of, you allude to that in various yep. Po- yep. point times in your essay. But I, I, I think the right way to think about this is, as individuals, let's make a choice. You know, here we have this unbelievable menu. Yes, there's some really fattening, unhealthy uh, things down at this part of the buffet, but uh, this other part of the buffet, and some of that's, it's fun. You can have an ice cream cone now and then. You you don't want to eat it all day. But the rest of the time, you've got this extraordinary profusion of ideas and opportunities to learn and explore. And the question is, how do we we navigate that? So, I want to react to a couple of things you said because uh, the way you framed your response to the trend so far is almost it's it's uh, an apologist mode of um, it sort of overemphasizes actually the very criticisms that uh, drive Walden Ponding, which I think are actually wrong. So if you actually look at um, the things they're recommending, so take for example academic papers or academic lengthy books. And I come from the academic world, same as you. I spent several years in my PhD and postdoc research diving into you know, archival journals, um, technical textbooks. So my background is in mechanical and aerospace engineering. And it might not be as bad as, say, social psychology. But honestly, 90% of all papers and technical materials I read was junk. Yeah. And I hated it. And my own papers, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to... Um, spin my career as anything great, but I think I was an okay researcher. I got maybe a few citations for the few papers I wrote um, uh, while I was in academic research. But when I move over to the blogosphere, it's so much a richer environment and the conversation gets smarter and better so much faster. So my best blog posts, they've gotten, you know, Thousands and thousands of reactions and wonderful conversations have come out of that. Things that have never happened with my academic work, which kind of languished in obscurity. And most academic work, by the way, deserves to languish in obscurity. Uh, You'll see this comment a lot um, in sort of hardline uh, Twitter is good people, which I include myself in, where you'd say things like, 
oh, that book should be a blog post at best, and maybe that blog post should just be a Twitter thread. And this assessment that we are all coming to in my corner of um, the discourse is because we're starting to see that the appearance and formal structure of depth does not equal actual depth. So the what I think of as the traditional literary industrial complex of academia, TED Talks, um, very high gravitas uh, newspaper op-eds and stuff, it's... Uh, it has the form and structure of depth. You look at it and you think, hey, this should be good, deep stuff, but it's not. I mean, you look at the New York Times op-ed section, it's like warmed over, recycled, one week late clickbaiting that's actually picking up where Twitter leaves off. And the original conversation on Twitter ends up being like, you know, higher signal, lower noise, more interesting and more current than the New York op-ed uh, version of it. You look at half the books that come out, they're the same. So uh, I want to sort of uh, point that out. That uh, So this is not, you know, uh, uh, a both sides argument. This is actually a comment on humanity. Uh, humans come in, you know, grades of like uh, sophistication, shallowness, uh, superficiality of interests, depth of interests. And you will find people in every medium who are going deep and doing like profoundly interesting things, exploring information spaces. And you will find, you know, 90% of people using whatever form the medium offers to produce honestly bullshit. Yeah, so, well, Van God, I, w- I just want to react yeah. to that for a sec because uh-huh. I think – uh, you're, you're onto something there. The part that I know you're critiquing my critique a little bit, but I, I want to. The part I want to really agree with is that a lot of this um, worry about social media is a form of condescension. It's basically, well, I know how to handle it. Of course, uh, you know, I'm I'm sophisticated. I'm deep. I'm thoughtful. It's them, the masses, the rest of the folks. They need help. They need to be controlled because they can't control themselves. There is a a, a definite um, paternalism there that I do not like, and I, I don't. I want to make it clear that I don't embrace that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's there's there's several dimensions to this. So there's uh, the one I was um, going after is almost like form structure conflation in understanding media. Uh, you're pointing out the sort of elite versus commoner. Relationship of condescension and um, sort of uh, uh, actually riffing a little bit more on that. That's been a sort of ongoing theme for about 20 years in um, conversations about digital media, right? I mean, you had uh, Surowiki with his Wisdom of Crowds book. I think that was 2002. So we've been having this conversation for at least a couple of decades, and we now know a lot more. I mean, this is an economics podcast, and to a large extent, what we're talking about really is. Uh, uh, in some sense, efficiency and intelligence of uh, information uh, markets, uh, right? And uh, wisdom of crowds is a thing. There are times when crowds can act stupid and insane where they uncritically just repeat each other. But there's other times when crowds are actually constituted of individuals who bring a lot of private knowledge and they're kind of adding a lot of intelligence and mechanisms sort of coordinate and wire that information together. And a larger emergent intelligence appears. And we are very familiar with one mechanism by which this happens, namely the economic markets, um, which is the focus of your world. But I think we are just seeing the emergence of an entirely different mechanism that works on the same principles. Um, And I've written a 
quite a bit about this as well, both in the original thread and in subsequent tweets and uh, newsletters. But I think of this as what I call the graph mind. You can call it the hive brain. I also think of it as the global uh, social computer in the cloud. But the idea is that this is an extraordinarily powerful computing and intelligence extracting mechanism that functions something like a market. It's a big distributed computer. But to participate in it, you have to be willing to let your individuality be subsumed in the larger conversation. So when you're on Twitter and you know bantering back and forth with a bunch of other smart people, what you say and what you do and the memes and you know clever coinages you come up with, that matters. But who you are doesn't. So this is why one of my metrics of success for myself as a blogger and you know very online person is it's there's nothing better than seeing a meme that you helped create sort of propagate through the wilderness of social media and nobody knows where it came from. Uh, come from uh, came from. I'm often like really pleased when that happens. And uh, I've done that with a, a few times. Like one of the coinages I've been credited with is the phrase premium mediocre, which comes from um, an article I wrote called The Premium Mediocre Life of Maya Millennial. So that blog was a viral hit. A lot of people appreciated it. But what I loved even more was as that idea percolated through the zeitgeist, through the global social computer in the cloud, and I do Twitter searches, a lot of people are now starting to use it in roughly the way I intended in coining it and have no idea where it came from. And it's lovely. It's like I have added a small, I don't know, vitamin pill of intelligence to the discourse, and it's hopefully making the computation and processing of information a little bit more efficient. So... My reaction to this is uh, both surprise and delight at being able to do this. But for a lot of people, the reaction when this happens is utter dismay. They feel they've been appropriated. They feel their best thinking has been diluted and leaked out into the wilderness rather than, you know, captured and monetized. And I think that comes from this sense of... uh, Uh, what I've been calling fear of being ordinary. So you've got fear of missing out, which is the syndrome we sometimes think of uh, people like myself having, which is they're online all the time and are afraid we'll miss some exciting new thing that happens. But fear of being ordinary is when you let yourself be that online, sort of gonzo present in social media, you kind of lose your individuality and you become just part of this computational soup and great things come out of the computational soup, but chances are you're not going to get what you think of as the appropriate level of credit for that. So Walden Ponding, in one sense, is a retreat to reclaim your individuality. So I've been playing around with you know metaphors like you're doing an attention stock buyback uh, and shrinking sort of your presence, even at the expense of um, you know doing less in the world, you can claim more credit for what you do in fact do. So there's, there's this fear of being ordinary. You want to live in a domain where you can claim authorial um, credit, authorship for the ideas you come up with. You want to be a legible part of a tradition you want to associate with yourself with. Like when I, I looked up um, your work and you're, um, what is it, a fourth generation Chicago school economist, right? And that's a well-known legible tradition. You can draw a genealogy of uh, generations of economists who worked on a set of ideas and you can trace the descent of ideas. So that's one kind of idea space where you can kind of trace the provenance of ideas. And that's great. And it's a kind of idea space we are very comfortable being in. It has a calculus of merit and credit and appreciation and advancement and rewards. But on the other hand, we have this great new thing coming up. It can compute answers to questions that are much more 
you know, complex and subtle than we could ever compute with either the academic tradition or the market tradition or the journalistic tradition. And we have to get used to working in that mode. So my reaction to this is delight. But for a lot of people, it's fear of being ordinary, fear of sort of having their individuality lost, even if the output is, you know, extraordinarily enlightened insights. Yeah. So so I think the I want to just add a couple of things to that. I think that's a very deep thought, actually. And I, I like you talk about it, the essay, FOMO and FOBO, fear of missing out and fear of being ordinary. And my first thought was when I read that was, well, I'm not really afraid of being ordinary. I have my followers on Twitter. They see what I write. My name's attached to it. But you're making a deeper point. I want to try to let me try to expand on it a little bit. So somebody gave me your name or I saw a reference to something you wrote on Ribbon Farm, uh, maybe two years ago. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, I'm not sure that's going to make a good econ talk, but uh, I wish it did. It's interesting, but I'm going to leave it alone. And I put it down and I forgot about you. And then somewhere along the line, somehow, I don't know how, uh, this Walden Ponding uh, piece got referenced to me. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't see you in the hall and say, what have you mm-hmm. written lately? And you said, oh, you'll like this. Somehow, you know, my wife always says, how'd you find out about X, I always say, how do I know? I don't even know how to answer that. Twitter, email, suggestions. I, you know, it's I get emails from listeners. I, so somebody, let's pretend somebody actually sent this to me. It's possible. I've forgotten. I don't keep track of it. So mm-hmm. it's a nice idea to say my guest today is Venkatesh Rao, and I want to thank so and so for suggesting it. I've forgotten that. Uh, worse, um, I have a quote in my Adam Smith book. Uh, that starts off, the universe is full of dots. And I'm not going to quote it in verbatim here, but the gist of the quote is, uh, the secret's not what you can do by connecting the dots. The, the real question is, why did you leave out all the other dots you could have included? It's a deep and beautiful way to talk about cherry picking. And, and yep. people think I said that because it's in my book. It gets quoted on Twitter all the time. I didn't say it. Sam Thompson, who I don't <laughs> know, but I like to, I like to point it out because – it's such a wonderful quote. I like to give him credit. But as you're pointing out now, you can argue that it's really not important who gets the credit. Now, our egos want the credit. And you could argue as an economist, I'm not going to, that by, by giving credit, we encourage people to look for more ideas. I think that's kind of silly. I don't think that's why we, we're generating ideas and clever thoughts. Some of it's ego. Mm-hmm. Some of it's just the part of being human and the delight we get in wordplay. So Walton Ponding, you know, it's, I don't think you sat around saying, you know, this is going to make me more money. I'm going to get to be on on more media, and, and I'm going to mm-hmm. be able to charge more when I speak. You know, you just enjoyed the phrase. You thought of it. It, it was a moment of eureka. But the other point I want to make, and I think this – to come back to your uh, – this idea of fear of being ordinary, I think there's a, a tribalism and an identity issue here. So I'm much less of a Chicago economist uh, than I was when I came out of graduate school. I've sort of shucked off some of that identity. It's kind of a more like my hometown than where I live now. <laughs> and I kind of like that. I'm proud of it because it is this heritage and tradition. And I kind of like that I, I've moved away. I, I kept, I've made my own distance from it. But I have a new identity. I have a new set of clothes, a new set of style. And I, I think what, what you're suggesting is, is that when we're on the internet, uh, when we're in these social media clouds and, and soups and stews, and we have all these wonderful words to try to capture this this emergent phenomena called uh, the wisdom of, of, of network conversation, um, 
when I'm in that, I'm, I kind of don't have an identity. And I think that's your point. I don't have that tribal feeling. And I do think, uh, although I can have my tribes within it, of course, I can't help myself there. I tend to mm-hmm. find tribes on my social media. And I think that's this human impulse we have. But ultimately, it, it, I'm submerged in the tribe. I'm submerged in Twitter. And what you're suggesting, I'm going to try it out and see what you think, kind of suggesting, okay, Twitter's a, you know, there's some really bad neighborhoods in Twitter. <laughs> and there's some high-rise apartments that look really beautiful, but once you get inside them, they're not so great. But there's also this wonderful back and forth. There's this neighborhood bar that's virtual where I can go hang out, and it's unlike the bar in Cheers. Nobody knows your name. They, they know it literally because they, they see who, you, <laughs> yeah. who, who, who your, what your Twitter handle is. But you're, you're creating something, and I think the idea that that is something noble, uh, that that's something human – uh, that that is something that's actually productive even, is um, it's a novel idea. I think most of us think of it as just entertainment, and that's totally wrong. And I think you're, one of your many insights here is that you're actually participating in something quite grand that you're not even probably aware of, as is true of many emergent phenomena. We always use the, mm-hmm. the ant in the ant colony. The ant, co- ant knows nothing about the purpose of the ant colony. It just has this very narrow task of, say, dropping uh, pheromones for other ants to follow to the trail yep. of where the food is. They don't realize what the consequences are. Don't think about it. So here we are just kind of fooling around, yelling, got my megaphone. It's a very small megaphone uh, on these social media platforms. And and as we all talk together, we create something unique. So I think that's a really um, it's a really beautiful idea, and it's it's not an easy idea to sell. But I, I like it. And I think the the fear of being ordinary, the phobo worry – that I'll be submerged in this soup and only be a a, uh, a virtual cog of some sort is um, is is part of what's going on here. Yeah, and you're right. It's one of those things that I think a lot of us are realizing at the same time that there's something much deeper going on. And I want to sort of um, go back to a couple of things you said, uh, like. Think of the idea of like, you know, the dots you didn't connect or the fact that I pegged you as a Chicago school economist and you clarified that you've kind of drifted off that. So a lot of this idea of like ego validating um, narrative construction that we think of as the history of an intellectual tradition or a tradition of ideas, it's pure myth making. It's just a pretty story we tell ourselves about um, what actually happened. It's a narrative on top of a lot of um, phenomenology. And arguably, it's a false sense of sort of um, historical clarity on top of a tradition that was never not murky. So Twitter has just um, made it impossible for us to lie about the truth of our you know, intellectual tradition histories. So uh, you have, like, you know, you might credit one person with sort of taking you down a bunny trail. You don't know about the six other people who are involved in the soup, and you just could not see the soup before. Now you can see the soup. You can see every connection that the soup is making. So that's one point to keep in mind, that it was always false. It's not that it became false now, but the soup has always been the actual foundation of um, the discourse. Uh, Another um, interesting idea is, uh, you've got, uh, you know, the famous Harry Truman um, quote that, um, what is it? Uh, it's amazing what's possible when you don't care who gets the credit. Yeah, well, that's a good, and, it's a good, it's a good example because Harry Truman yeah. didn't say that. Oh, uh, exactly. <laughs> it, it gets attributed to Ronald Reagan, who certainly, uh, if Harry Truman said it, it's probably didn't start with Ronald Reagan, although it's a deep, 
and, and obvious truth, so it could have been thought of by more than one person. Uh, as far exactly. as I know, the first example that I know of it coming is in David McCullough's book on the Panama Canal. The engineer <laughs> who built the canal said that. And I'm, now I'm, I'm blanking on his name, which is perfect for this conversation, right? He's, I'm not giving him the credit. Um, I'm going to confuse him with the guy who built the Brooklyn Bridge. But the guy who built the Panama Canal, which took an enormous team of of, of human beings in all different capacities, uh, said that, uh, <laughs> I think, at least before Harry Truman. Carry on. <laughs> so that's that's actually a wonderful example, and it's great that it kind of organically emerged in our conversation yeah, as a mistake on my part, right? <laughs> and interestingly, that phenomenon has a name. Have you heard of Stigler's Law of Eponymy? Of course. So he, he was on my, he was yeah, on my, he didn't come up with that. <laughs> he was on my committee, and I actually, my PhD committee, but it's George Stigler we're talking about. And it's funny that you mentioned it because it crossed my mind about six minutes ago, and I thought, should I bring that up now? Leave it alone. Explain what it is. No, I think it's perfectly pertinent, and it's wonderful that Stigler's law of eponymy was not actually, you know, coined by Stigler. And it's you see this sort of thing all over the place. Like these days, when I do actually write a serious longer essay or book chapter, and I actually do try to go and look for the provenance of various quotes. I'm amazed at how often I find, like, you know, through Quote Investigator or one of those sites, just how deep the bunny trail behind yeah. <laughs> every false attributed quote goes. It's like versions and versions and versions, and in the end, it gets lost in some murky yeah. thing 100 years ago. And I love that because it tells me that, you know, books written 50, 60 years ago where you couldn't do this kind of research as easily are likely absolutely chock full of yeah. misattributions. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> rotten all the way through the citational sort of uh, web there. So it's kind of good that we're backing off from that. But describe, but, you should say what it is, Stigler's Law of Eponymy. It's that, oh, it's that yeah. things named after people weren't discovered by them. Exactly. Uh, and I would sort of generalize that to all ideas, so not just named things like <laughs> theorems or ideas, just in general, like, you know, um, take Walden Ponding. I know I thought of it independently, but I haven't actually done the research to see, like, in the 100-plus years since uh, uh, Thoreau, whether somebody else came up with that kind of satirical, uh, uh, you know, term it's for also, it. So it's, sure al it well, it's also possible that someone else thought of it, you saw it, didn't notice it, and it somehow rose in your brain. Absolutely. That happens to me. Yeah. That happens to me with other people's work, but it happens to me with my own work. I think of what I think is a novel <laughs> idea, and I thought of it already, but I forgot about it. Yeah. So all this, I think what we're both getting at is the absolute richness of, uh, you know, thought and intelligence mining that can come up. If you sort of let your identity not necessarily be dissolved, it's not like we're all joining Twitter as a cult, but sort of set it on the side and it's not like you're losing your identity you're just not using it at the moment and you're diving in so much is possible and when you look at the opposite vector that a lot of people are encouraging us to go on which is walden ponding which ironically by the way the biggest evangelists are former technologists who had a hand in designing that end and this is like a, a historical pattern the biggest evangelists for a religion are the ones who left the opposing religion right sure. and it's when you talk to more catholic than the pope <laughs> that's that's where it comes. That's what that expression is about, right? The convert yeah. is more Catholic than the Pope. They, it's, exactly. a, it's a real thing. And you see, when you talk to like regular people who are not part of like the Silicon Valley tech economy, like we are, they're actually not as you know 
I don't know, they don't take this as seriously. They're just rolling with it and figuring it out as they go along. And most of them are doing a reasonably good job. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't elements of what they're doing that aren't valuable. I do think um, whereas the overall shaming campaign of shaming the tech companies into like broad, you know, manifesto-ish stuff, that's like not helpful. Some of the maybe specific ideas of, all right, turn off this dark pattern, have this ability to create dark mode. All those are maybe good, but um, I do want to point out one exception to this general critique, which is when you have these large bottom-up platforms of like participatory conversations and something like, you know, um, national cybersecurity agency with like very trained operatives gets in and they're running the equivalent of uh, information special ops and misinformation campaigns and things like that. That's something that you do have to kind of take seriously and as a special case of what's happening. So hacking of, you know, election discourses and things like that is what I'm getting at. So there, yeah, but that's a very special case and that's not something the general Walden Ponding retreat works on. So, But the reason I'm bringing that up is, if you look at this conversation, we've been having it for about 15, 20 years, uh, you know, uh, Nick Carr, uh, Cal Newport on Deep Work, all that stuff. Uh, but it got particularly acute in the last three or four years for a couple of unrelated reasons. One is you've got all this political grade weirding and just the general PTSD of being online at a toxic time. And a lot of that is caused very deliberately by, you know, focused bad actors. So that's one thing that's getting uh, conflated. And the other is that whether it's caused by Russian spies or, you know, generally a lot of uh, toxic baggage being aired, part of the retreat is a pattern of healing rather than actual adaptation to a new information environment. And this, I think, is actually a legitimate thing. So if you're, say, in... Uh, particularly in the politics part of Twitter and your good faith and you've been enjoying being part of the big soup computer uh, since before 2016, but in 2016, it just got a little too toxic and you retreated. I think that's a good thing. That's a kind of information um, processing hygiene that we all have to develop. We have to learn to retreat when the psychological stress is too much and then go back in when we've kind of recovered and healed a bit. So managing your sort of... uh, emotional reactions to the discourse is actually important. But this, again, I would argue, is just more intense and democratic right now, but it's always been the case. Like, you could have been in an academic seminar 30 years ago where a rude older faculty member sort of said something rude, and you had to go away and, you know, go on a vacation to recover from the trauma, right? Yeah. So it's it's, it's a learning process. I want to give an example of that, and then then I want to challenge your you're, um, I'm going to see if you might want to draw the boundary in a different place. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, sometimes I worry I'm too active. I, I do think if I'm not careful, I'm down in the bottom left-hand corner of your diagram on <laughs> uh, small-minded things. With the, It's more like gossip rather than the deep exchange of ideas. And I recently it, – it's just – it's bizarre, but it took me this long to – to have this cultural response, I've recently started blocking people. And, you know, I feel bad, It's which is funny, right? Somebody comes online follow, who follows me on Twitter. Somebody tweets. They are um, nasty, mm-hmm. uh, potentially sometimes uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, they are, uh, at a minimum, rude. And the thing they do that starts to bother me so much that I now put it in my profile on Twitter is, uh, they assume the worst about me. 
and mm-hmm. don't bother finding out what I actually think or say. And now I just block them. And I, I it's and when I said it's in my profile. I say I would now block people who do that. And and, I, and at first I thought it's like oh, I don't it makes me uncomfortable. But what it's really like is a guy is you're out in your yard. And a guy comes down the street, his windows are down in his car, and he yells some uh, anti-Semitic or grotesque uh, insult to you. And it's one thing to say, well, just don't listen to it. And But that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. It's much better just to say, I'm going to go inside now. I'm not going to let the, this guy, <laughs> guy bug me. I'm not going to let him get at me. And so now I just block him, and I, it, it's fantastic. It's, it, is, uh, it's, it is a way to cope with this emotional part of this that I think we're really unprepared for. The other the other example, the other metaphor I like for this, and you can steal this, Venkat, and use it in your own – pretend you thought of it, uh, is to me Twitter is like somebody putting a bumper sticker on my car, right? I'm driving down the street. All of a sudden, somebody slaps a bumper sticker on my car about my identity <laughs> or myself, and it's like, no, no, no. I get to decide what bumper sticker goes on my car, and I think that's the that's the dark side of Twitter. And I'm just I just block people who put bumper stickers on my car that aren't really describing what kind of person I am. Okay, so I, I, you, you want to say something? Go ahead. Oh yeah, it's. I think that's a very important point, and I actually made this point in a couple of uh, newsletters ago. That social media has an additive bias. You're, you know, encouraged to acquire followers, post more and more, and it has very few subtractive mechanisms like you know blocking and muting. And the ones that we do have are primitive and kind of nuclear option. Yeah. So I would yeah. actually state your point in an even stronger form. I also initially did not like blocking because it seemed uncivil and I think I had the wrong calibration of what civility is. But I've since gone beyond like just blocking rude people or people who are just, uh, you know, um, objectionably ideologically too far from me Uh, and simply blocking anybody with whom I have too much problem just getting through and it's simply not worth the trouble. So I love Jeff Bezos's line that, you know, Amazon is willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. So I adopt that attitude in my role in places like Twitter, which is I am willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. I'm part of some very productive, you know, social media uh, hive mind computations and that I like and I want to be there and I want to be part of that conversation. But other conversations, things I might say very casually and quickly without like, you know, trying to be very clearly understood by people who don't know me, I am going to be misunderstood and I'm okay with that. And quite often, there's going to be an asymmetry uh, on the part of my um, relationship with people who I end up confusing. So I might have very little interest in making sure somebody else understands me correctly, but they might have a very intense interest in making sure they understand me correctly. And often they get annoyingly, you know, almost chalkery where they're like constantly dogging me to sort of clarify, add detail. And I'm like, sorry, this is not a useful part of a conversation for me and I'm not doing so this is like you know like a market it's um, ultimately selfish individual motives I'm not being altruistic here I'm participating in conversations that are productive for me as well and if it's not and you're being a little too annoying I'm going to mute or block you so I've done that multiple times and I've become very liberal with that and it's almost become like a it's not a personal thing anymore and most of my blocks and mutes are in fact not about civility at all anymore I would say eight out of ten of them are you're just being annoying. The conversational gap between our respective computational processes in this, you know, global social computer are just too far apart. <laughs> Let's not bother. It's just not worth trying to 
cross-pollinate intelligence across these two conversations. So that's my reaction. But um, another sort of related phenomenon I want to point out is I think of the most productive conversations in places like Twitter as ones that are not tribal, that don't degenerate into tribal derping. So for me, it's like confirmation and disconfirmation are the two least useful things to do on Twitter. The most useful thing is to actually find a new dimension and vector of a conversation that's neither confirmatory nor disconfirmatory. And a lot of people don't like that. They are in such strong, you know, beef only mode, as I call it. They're all constantly beefing along tribal lines. All they're interested in is confirmation and disconfirmation. And that's just not interesting because it's a kind of computation that can be run on like, you know, the New York Times op-ed section. It's a primitive kind of discourse. I'm just not interested. I'm interested in the more sophisticated discourses that Twitter is capable of. Yeah, what we need, what we need is a, uh, a website where you, you would... Uh, there'd be a, a microphone. You would say something like, um, uh, I like mushroom pizza. And there would be an enormous roar of a, of a, like a football <laughs> stadium sized crowd. So, so we can get your, you know, your fix of, of ego and tribal sentiment. Uh, you know, it could be, you could have different kinds. You know, when you say, I don't like so-and-so, some political figure, the crowd would not just roar, but, you know, angrily roar and sound violent and, Anyway, I, I want to. I, I want to describe Instagram. <laughs> That's Instagram. <laughs> I'm not much of an Instagram user. I can't. I can't fully respond to that. Um, I want to. I want to ask you a different question. I think there are two places where I, where I disagree with you, uh, in a more fundamental way, and and I'll let you uh, react to this. So the first one is, uh, we've never met. You and I have never met. Um, I have an instinctive like for liking for you based on the way you write. And your flamboyant style, uh, the fact that you have um, all kinds of insights, some of which I don't understand, by the way, which is fun. <laughs> that's a plus, not a that's a feature, not a bug, right? So I'm, I've read a few of your pieces before, and I, I like them a lot. So we could imagine in the old days, you'd have a, an article in a magazine, and I would enjoy that, and I would write you a, a, a letter. And I would say, uh, dear Mr. Rao, I really enjoyed your piece on Walton Ponding. Um, you, I found it very thoughtful. And then I might say something like, you know, I wrote a piece that's related to that you might enjoy. I want to, if, if your library has it, blah, blah, blah. So that's a 1950s, 1970s uh-huh. interaction. And you'd get that letter and it'd be fun. Uh, my father used to write uh, poets and, and other people that he – and other authors whose work he liked. And they would often write back. Uh, he has a letter from Robert Penn Warren, which shocked me that Robert Penn Warren bothered to respond to my dad, uh, who's in a different part in the, in the in the soup. But he had time and was either flattered or thought it was important for whatever reason. He responded. It was really sweet. So that was the old, old style. Now, I, now, today, you and I could have a Twitter friendship. We could go back and forth uh, on Twitter. We haven't, I don't think, uh, much. I did just before an hour or two before the conversation – I tweeted an article about uh, Thoreau and Walden that you – I saw you like that. I thought, oh, that's nice. He's paying attention. That's good. Uh, and maybe he'll read it before we, we, we do this interview. It's by Catherine Schultz, and if we don't get to talk about it, we'll put a link up to it where she explains that Thoreau is a wicked and despicable person and a, <laughs> and a hypocrite. Uh, and the whole Walden Ponding thing is, is nonsense. But uh, it's a great piece, by the way, very thoughtful mm-hmm. and entertaining and written with great fervent style, uh, as Catherine Schultz often does. So uh, – I just mentioned that in passing, but we could have responded, you know, instead of having you on Econ Talk, we could have gone back and forth on Twitter, but now we've got to a new level. We're having an actual conversation, audio, 
Uh, we video Skyped for a minute when we started this and we got to see each other. And then the fourth level, this is what I want to focus on. The, the next level would be, you know, the next time I'm in Seattle or you're in the Washington, D.C. area, we could sit down and have coffee. And, and that would be kind of fun just to see each other face to face. But the real, I think the more important thing would be if we could have coffee regularly, and I have friends I have coffee with regularly, a different type of conversation emerges, a different type of human experience emerges. Some of it, by the way, is overrated. Some of it is, you know, Tyler Cowen recently defended social media versus parties. Parties are face-to-face, but often loud, empty, and superficial, Mm -hmm. and he's got something to say there. But at the same time, I don't think we want to underrate deep human face-to-face connection, and I do think that... uh, the digital revolution has, has challenged that. And it, it, there is a, a temptation to stay in my room all day flicking through Twitter if I'm not careful. So you didn't mention anything like that. Do you want to say anything about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that's because um, you have most of your life still in traditional institutions. Uh, I believe you're at Hoover. And um, it's a uh, so right now, by the way, I'm not in Seattle. I'm in Los Angeles on a fellowship at the Berggruen Institute. But I've spent much of the last 10 years out in the wild, so to speak. And a lot of what you describe, for me, it has happened a lot more intensely out here in the social media wild than it ever did in my institutional settings. Mm-hmm. So for four years before I became a free agent consultant blogger, so 2006 to 11, I was working at Xerox in their research group and, you know, uh, I had like um, hallway interactions. And before that, I was in academia for um, almost a decade and I would have the same kind of hallway interactions and, you know, extended frequent coffee or uh, lunch uh, dates with uh, colleagues and co-workers. So I had all that. In fact, there used to be a law called the 50-foot law, which was most collaboration happens within 50 feet. This is pre-internet. And one of the first things I ever wrote about Twitter when I first saw Twitter, this was 2007 or 8, one of my earliest blog posts about Twitter was the 50-foot rule has been sort of refactored online. And now your 50-foot zone is actually global. So now you have to reimagine that 50-foot zone as the zone of what you can think of as intimate conversations on Twitter that are likely to escalate into long extended relationships that will actually get as intimate as um, physical distance and geography allows. So there are people who've literally gotten married off of Twitter. So that's an extreme case. But yeah, over the last 10, 15 years, when I look back, I've started a conference around my blog. I've had a huge number of wonderful friendships and collaborations emerge from it. There's people I meet as regularly as I can. Um, there's um, Facebook groups, Slacks, extended email threads, uh, lots of consulting gigs have come out of this. So I would say for my sort of uh, extra institutional feral lifestyle for the last decade, the kind of things you say are valuable and precious about the old institutional life, I've experienced them about 2x to 3x more than I ever did in institutional life. So I think the reason people don't realize this is they still have enough invested in the old institutional life that they have no need to kind of develop it in the social media world. And what ends up happening if you're forced to do that is you discover that it's possible to do that stuff in a lot more deep way and a lot more flexible way. And it's only a question of how imaginative you are and how much you actually want it. So I think if Nick Carr, whose book I apologize to Mr. Carr, I have not read, um, you know, as you say, I think you alluded to earlier, I think he's the guy who said Google's ruining your brain. 
mm-hmm. and he did have a book called The Shallows. I do remember that. Um, what he might respond, and I'm going to I'm going to disagree with him after I give his fake response, and then you can see if you agree <laughs> with either of us. He might say, "Okay, well, that's all nice." Um, but the truth is, is that our face-to-face interactions have have de- deteriorated as the internet has arisen because now our attention spans shorter. We might be face-to-face, but we're more likely to check our phone, respond to a text, flick through Twitter, find it hard to stay focused on a person face-to-face because I want to get back to my email and back to my my Twitterverse. And when I'm going to disagree with him, and I'm going to use your metaphor. I think, I think that there's some truth to it. By the way, I don't think it's I don't think it's absurd. I think that it is harder for people to sit still at dinner, and we have a rule in our house: we don't answer the phone or look at our phones at, during meals. I, I think that's those are some good rules. I think that's okay, uh, but I think there's a range of face to face, a range of of physical interaction. Um, I, I'm going to you've inspired me. I'll, we'll call it. I'm sure there's a clever version. You know, brick and mortaring. Uh, as a human, <laughs> I need to get a pun on brick, like friend and mortaring. Oh, we'll figure it out uh-huh. later. But you know, the, I have I have lots of face to face interactions that are superficial and 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 somewhat sterile. And then we have really deep ones. We have really extraordinary connections we make with people online, and then also face to face. And I don't think we've lost those. I don't think we've lost the ability to have the deep ones. And it's like your continuum of sort of gossipy, superficial conversations down in the left-hand corner and up in the right-hand corner is a profound exchange of ideas that changes the way you look at the world, that connects you to another human being in a way that, that creates a great emotional uh, reward and, and, and delight. And I think, I think those, if I could take the most charitable view of the internet is that, and I can say this as the host of Econ Talk, I've met more interesting people in the last 10 years uh, face-to-face, also certainly online, certainly over the interviewing people. That's been a, an amazing gift to be able to, and privilege to be able to do that. And But the face-to-face times that I interact with people are still deeply moving and profound. And I, as you say, I think you're right. I think I have more of them. I have exposure to more interesting people than I did in a world where I'd have that 50-foot rule and only interact with the people on my corridor. Absolutely. And I would, again, I seem to be in a pattern of taking your points and restating them in an even stronger form. But I would say when you talk about brick and mortaring, look back at the reality of our pre-internet sort of highly brick and mortar social life. And like Tyler Cohen said, you know, many parties are empty, but I would elaborate on that and say, we remember the interactions that are lovely and wonderful face-to-face interactions, but we kind of block out of our memories the ones that are not. And I remember growing up and so many damn boring visits to my parents, friends, a ceremonial culture of norms. Where I'm sure you know what you're talking about. What I'm talking about. We used to live in a culture of norms where there was an expectation of sort of polite participation in vast hours, countless hours of like really boring, tedious FaceTime. And I hated it. And one of the most wonderful things that has happened as a result of the internet is that those online internet norms of if I'm bored, I'm going to leave, they're actually percolating into meat space. And the way that's happening is, for example, uh, this became the law of two feet in uh, what was what used to be called open space technology and then became, you know, uh, bar camps where when you do an unconference, you don't have the old academic conference approach of 
just because a respected elder professor is uh, doing a keynote, you're sort of forced to stay in the room and pay attention, even though you're bored out of your mind. You should leave. (laughs) So modern unconferences have the internet-like law of two feet, which is if you're not actually interested in the conversation, if the person is boring you, get up and leave. Do something better with your time. And I like that that norm is shifting in a more online way. And this is something like, you know, I think uh, Nirayal in his book, one of his points, I, I'm still looking through it. Uh, he talks about, I think he calls it a fubber or something. So somebody who's like you know, snubbing you with the phone at dinner. So you're at dinner and apparently you're boring your dinner partner. So that person pulls out their phone and starts checking email at the slightest interruption, right? So that's phone snubbing or fubbing as AL calls it. And But look at what that signifies. It tells you that you're in a fundamentally boring conversation you don't want to be in. And though the sort of actual behavior may be obnoxious of pulling out your phone and, you know, actually checking out literally, wouldn't it be so much nicer to not have that uh, lunch meeting at all and to be able on Twitter to actually triage that and say, all right, it's been fun chatting with you for three minutes on Twitter, but I'm going to say no to coffee with you because you're probably going to bore me and I'm going to end up checking my phone. So let's not go there and insult and fub each other, right? So I love that that has now become a possibility and we're able to make our more intimate, deeper exchanges more high-yielding, more more of them are meaningful and the ones that are meaningful are more meaningful, right? And this is actually uh, probably the biggest meta critique I have of Walden Ponding, which is it fetishizes an old-style brick and mortar. And it's actually, by the way, that's actually as perverse a kind of attention hacking as the social media platforms do to you. So the social media platforms might be throwing clickbait at you and dragging you to useless articles you don't want, but equally there's all these sort of evangelists of Walden Ponding who are hacking your attention with like, you know, (laughs) ritual descriptions of, oh, weren't game nights wonderful, weren't campfire nights wonderful, weren't like family dinners wonderful, and they try to suck you back into that world, and you realize that, you know what, that's romanticizing the past and it never actually was that great and I hate this freaking game night I've been sucked into. So That's awesome. <laughs> I, now, I, I, you're, you remind me of my dad who often when he would, we would describe a dinner party, he would, he would often say, nah, I wish I'd been upstairs with my book. <laughs> and, and the book, <laughs> right, the, it, it, it was gauche in the 1950s or the 1960s or 70s or 80s to take out a book in the middle of a conversation. But there were times when my dad would just say, I, I need to go lay down and go upstairs and just read his book. Sometimes in the middle of a social gathering, which had some kind of influence on me, I'm sure. The other thing I have to point out, Venkat, which is unbelievably great, is that about four minutes ago, you said the word meat space, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. That is a phrase I use all the time, or used to use, as an example of a word that did not catch on. <laughs> <laughs> and how you know, I use language as an example often as an emergent phenomenon, which I think I probably stole from either Hayek or Thomas Sowell. They've, I think both used it. I probably thought I thought of it. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But language is emergent. We're all – Walden Ponding is a beautiful thing. It may catch on. If it does, it will be only because of really what we would call word of mouth, people saying mm-hmm. it or sometimes writing it. And other phrases die out. I always – I use the word behoove. Every once in a while, behoove, you'll hear it, but it's in trouble. Behoove is not doing well. Uh, Alamosinary, which is a word I heard come out of Milton Friedman's mouth a number of times. It just means charitable. It still is used in legal documents uh, having to do with donations and other things, I think. 
and use a property. But Alamosanary is dying out. Behoove is dying out. And I said, Google is – it's here. Nobody decided Google should be a verb, but it, it's unstoppable. Google tried to, in early days, I think, keep people from using it as a verb. But now everyone uses to search on the internet to Google. And then I'd use as the example Meatspace is a word that didn't catch on. It, it's an it's a uh, it's a it's an example of brick and mortar. It means in it's as opposed to virtual space or cyberspace. There's Meatspace. I think we need Meatspace M E E T. That would be this friendship thing, <laughs> or maybe it's Meatface M E A T F A C. I'm still trying. It's hard to do. It's hard to create a phrase. That, that catches on. And you have to recalibrate your target. Like one of the reasons I don't bother with assessments like it's catching on or not catching on is we no longer have a canonical mainstream discourse where that phrase even makes sense. Oxford sure, English I mean, Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary, whether it makes it in there or not, it's not important. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not important. It's not important whether Walter Cronkite uses it in his nightly yeah, broadcast. Exactly. If it's a useful term in the particular subculture where you're, you know, global social computer computation is going on and it does a useful job there, then it's a good thing. So meat space, um, you might say it's not caught on at say the mainstream level of uh, a mass media newspapers and television, but it's a completely common usage in the subcultures I run around in online. And it's a wonderful and useful word to use there. And that's all I need from it. I'm fine with it being just, you know, a conversation context specific term and i'm actually like i said not just happy to be misunderstood i'm happy for a lot of the conversations i'm interested in being really obscure to the mainstream because that does not mean they don't produce value for the people participating in them or you know second order value beyond so it actually doesn't matter whether those things catch on so long as they actually make the computation more efficient i like how you point out that there's a ironic use of the trademark symbol tm <laughs> so you could start putting – when you use the phrase Walden Ponding, you, you might put TM in there. But everyone knows that's a joke. It doesn't mean yep. that we have to get your permission to use it or we need to pay you a royalty or mm-hmm. or anything. Um, but l- let me try a different tack um, on uh, a disagreement. And this one I think I feel a little stronger about, although uh, I like how I'm getting sucked into uh, romanticizing uh, the digital <laughs> world as a way of justifying my mindless uh, – uh, use of Twitter and other other places, but this is uh, this is about I would say uh, transcendence. Uh, there are a couple places in your uh, essay where you make uh, mock literally, not just as a metaphor, the idea of being a monk, the idea of abandoning um, this world and isolating yourself for a religious motive, and say contemplating a candle or whatever. And you use that as an as an example, and I, I'm sympathetic to part of that. I do think if all you do is look at a candle, you've you've kind of um, failed as a human being, even if you get really good at looking at a candle, because mm-hmm. you've you've failed to transform the world. And I, I think and be fully expressive of what makes you human. So I'm I'm I, I'm with you on that. Where I want to disagree, or at least hear your reaction, is this idea of transcendence. So in my experience, the the world of the frenetic world of social media, the pace is exhilarating at times, and it's also a little bit degrading. It also does tend to turn me into a bit of a, a Skinnerian rat hitting the lever for the immediate return of something that produces pleasure. And I don't want to be a rat. 
Uh, I just I forgot who said it. I've already forgotten. Nobody wins the the rat race. Uh, I don't want to pursue just what gives me pleasure or what gives me ego satisfaction. I don't even want to just be happy being in the soup of the quantum soup you've been talking about. Sometimes I want to get in touch with something greater than myself, something larger. Uh, There's some dangerous aspects to that. Potentially, we understand that in the tribal world. There can be beautiful things about it when it's done well. But I do worry sometimes that the frantic pace of, uh, of the internet and change and the information fire hose that I drink from and which I love drinking from, that sometimes that makes it harder for me to get in touch with things that are that I would call transcendent. I, without trying to put that into more detail yet, uh, react to that. I think uh, I don't think we disagree on this. Uh, so the sort of um, joke about you know making fun of very naive monastic reactions to the world at large. So not just the internet. I mean, this is a long-running conversation in mystic traditions and meditative practice traditions of is it better to retreat to the mountains to a beautiful monastery and, you know, meditate for 10 years and achieve enlightenment? Or is that in some sense... Or say cure uh, cancer in the lab. Yeah, (laughs) any of those sort of deep uh, retreat modes. Or is it um, in some sense um, a flawed accomplishment because you've retreated from the world to achieve it and it is too fragile to actually bring back to the world so in mystic traditions often you have you know tropes about uh, drunken masters and enlightened sages who come back to the city and live as um, you know beggars and crazy people in the city but they're actually you know wise behind their appearances um, so you've got so this is a not a new question it's um, been addressed in different ways so i would say on the one hand, yeah, uh, anything that requires deep specialized attention, you should give it deep specialized attention. If there's only three other people in the world who understand some obscure mathematics um, theorem that needs to be solved, then those three people are maybe the only people you need to talk to for 10 years in order to get, go somewhere, right? And pick the medium appropriate to that. So there is an element of pick the medium appropriate to where your attention is going and wherever sort of your meditative transcendence is taking you. So that part, I I have no uh, sort of uh, quarrel with. I think that's the smart thing to do. But when you sort of step back from those kinds of specialized things where you have to kind of do a specialized form of retreat and talk about more general things of uh, of broader salience to a lot of people, like say thousands rather than tens, then you have to ask, all right, you're doing this sort of Skinnerian rat thing where you're in a stimulus response loop at the lowest Twitter level of the conversation. And perhaps a part of you is saying, all right, maybe I should retreat from this and write a deeper paper after reading and thinking a lot more. So I like to think of those within a market metaphor of your attention is a sort of asset you want to allocate and you allocate it according to the intelligence you have available. So if you have alpha on like a hot stock that you know through some you know reliable means is going to pop, maybe you should invest in that individual stock. If you don't know any better, you should go invest in an index fund, right? So that's kind of conventional investing wisdom when you translate it to attention allocation, you reach the same kinds of um, conclusions, which is if I'm not actually obsessed with 
um, you know, a clay mathematics prize level problem and I'm not one of the appropriate people to be solving that, then I don't need that kind of attention management and allocation in like a single stock. I can be in an index fund, which might be a Twitter conversation. So that's something to think about in terms of allocating attention appropriate to what you're thinking about in terms of medium and social context. Uh, the other aspect of that, which is conflating, I don't know, a pleasure principle, immediate hedonism as an uh, you know stance towards information consumption versus production, there's two layers to that. One is of course um, the sex versus reproduction kind of angle, which is that there's no necessary zero sum relationship between having fun versus actually producing something. So you know, uh, sex is pleasurable and sex produces babies as well, and both functions are important in evolution. So there's that aspect of Twitter. A lot of people have called it idea sex, and it has both those connotations of it's pleasurable and it produces perhaps greater works. I do think we want to be careful. I don't. I don't think we should romanticize Twitter too much. Ben God, I do think there's a uh, there are useful things that come out of Twitter. Um, I'm not sure how profound most of them are. What I find most valuable about it is the discovering of people and ideas and articles I didn't know about. The back and forth is, I think, less satisfying, uh, but it's part of the game. And so we all play that that back and forth part. Uh, I, I may have mentioned this before. I, I know a lot of people right now, numerous uh, folks working on different ways to have conversations online that would be different from Twitter. And um, uh, a couple out there right now, they're already functioning are Letter, letter.wiki. There's also Paragraph, P-A-I-R, Paragraph, where people are trying to create modes of conversation. But there are others that are below, they're not ready yet, but I think they're going to be interesting uh, variations on Twitter. Maybe Twitter will respond to those. Um, I think there's issues about portability of our connections that we have on these platforms that are interesting. We're going to talk about down the road, I hope, with other guests. But I want to I want to I want to close with uh, the last few points that you make and give you a chance to expand on those. Um, you're talking about someone who's an who's adept, an adept, somebody who's skilled, uh, and about the importance of distinguishing between a, a monk who's adept and somebody out in the actual world. You say a real adept ought to be able to meditate on the angriest, most toxic Twitter stream, consume the bile, and turn it into nectar, actionable insight you can bet on in the real world. A real adept ought to have strength-trained attention so they can spend an hour either reading a tweet stream or a once-in-a-generation history-disrupting philosophy book. No hack designer or advertiser should be able to lock them down in the 10th to 10 second range. So stop blaming the media platforms for your own wallowing in small-minded Twitter gossip about people. Strength trained to the point where you decide whether to be there or elsewhere. May the FOMO be with you and may you have the strength to resist FOBO. So you're saying, (laughs) may the fear of missing out be with you. You think that's a plus, get in the game. So I love all that and I think one one response would be, and you talk about it, so I want you to talk about it here. How do I get there from here? I mean, that's really hard. How do I deal with the temptation to stay in the half a second or three second range? How do I get to that hour concentration? How do I strength train 
my mind. And you give some suggestions in the essay. Talk about those now. So, yes. The, the criticism of Twitter that a lot of it actually is a sort of degenerative um, rotting of the brain, there is actually some truth to that, but it actually doesn't have to do with Twitter, the medium. And that's why, even though I appreciate all efforts to expand the options and try different variants of that kind of technology, I have a feeling that's like only 10% of the solution. So even if somebody most thoughtfully designs, you know, a healthy conversation Twitter and, um, I don't know, some uh, the Swedish government throws a billion dollars at it so it can be funded and doesn't have to seek profit, I don't think that would still solve the problem. Because fundamentally, the problem with sort of... Uh, collapsing into the degenerate, smallest-minded versions of the conversation is in the human brain rather than in the technology. And the reason that happens is that you only strength train your attention to do bigger and better and deeper things if there is something you care about enough to work on. And I like to make this distinction between, you know, being a pure consumer versus being um, a producer. And it's very, very important to be a producer as well. So a lot of what happens on Twitter, or I keep saying Twitter because it's sort of the earliest and best example of the kinds of things we're talking about, but it's all social media and all old media as well. But there is a, a way you can sort of play Twitter where you think you're producing, but you're actually consuming. All you're doing is reacting or retweeting or liking or reproducing derpy arguments that other people have thought up. You're not actually producing, even though you're going through the motions of typing and producing letters, you're not actually producing new thought. So if you do not have a vector along which you're actually trying to produce new ideas, you will never actually get into that strength training loop where you're challenging yourself to go bigger, faster, stronger every time you you know circle back to an idea. Like, you know, take Walden Ponding. It started out as like a casual insult directed at a friend on Twitter. It grew into a newsletter. It's grown into a couple of other scattered things. I might turn it into like a more polished piece later. But there's a vector along which I'm actually trying to produce a new idea starting with the seed. And if you look at a lot of what people complain about on Twitter, what's missing is not a technological mechanism. What's missing is not the intellectual capacity to strength train or the interest in doing so. What's missing is that one seed of productive insight that sort of hooks you more addictively than the worst designers in Silicon Valley can achieve. It hooks you and turns you into sort of a passionate uh, uh, bunny down the bunny trail where you're going down and trying to actually build something new. I think that's what rescues people from this malaise. And it, I don't know how to actually encourage this, but if you want to become like a true adept capable of doing what I said, you know, consume the bile, turn it into nectar, the only way you can do that is by becoming obsessed with the seed of uh, production, creating something new. Yeah, but you also suggest you should bounce back and forth between more superficial stuff to harder stuff. And I do think, you know, it's important to stretch. And um, it's weird, but, you know, in the old days, stretching meant reading a hard book rather than an easy book, right? There's a lot, you know, reading is a virtuous activity for many of us. We think of it as as some form of, of higher practice, uh, but they're different kind of books. <laughs> they're books that, you know, you can read in, in a, a sitting without giving any thought. They're just candy. They're the equivalent of candy. And then there's deeper, thoughtful, intellectual meals that, that are the books that change your life. And the idea that that 
you should get into the game as a producer and not just as a consumer, as I think uh, is one way to do that. And particularly with a longer, uh, with longer form, I think the, my worry again on these type of issues, I spend now, I, I spent too much time on Twitter storm, tweet storms than writing a nice essay on medium because it's, it's just easier and I get an immediate response and it's nice but uh, I have to discipline myself. I, th- I think a lot of what I, I write on Medium is more important uh, often, and I just I have to take responsibility. Yeah, and it's going to be uh, a period of calibration, a period of learning to make better judgments of what belongs where, a period of letting go sort of what I think of as uh, form content vanities. Like just because it would be better for my personal brand to write something up as a blog post doesn't mean its most valuable contribution to the information economy is as a blog post. Maybe it should, in fact, be a live Twitter thread that injects directly into the live conversation as it's happening, right? So you have to learn to make judgments uh, about medium and also sort of uh, be self-aware about your motives on why you're doing what you're doing. And I think this is a process of collective learning that will take the world about 10, 15 more years, and it's going to be stressful. Well, you might want to meditate so that you can be aware of when you need that quick hit and fix of ego so you can step back. So I'm just going to put in a plus for meditation. It's not your favorite thing, I can tell. I mean, I just have a broader conception of what it means to meditate. Like, I meant that, you know, meditating on a toxic Twitter stream, literally, like, in some ways, like you said, testing yourself with a more challenging thing. Yes, one way to do that might be to read a dense philosophy book. But another way to do that might be to actually try to live process a really toxic but important conversation on Twitter that's gone on for thousands of tweets, but is getting at something really important and a lot of toxic baggage is being aired and processed. And there's a lot of fake news, uh, misrepresentation, bad faith, good faith, but something very important is being thought about. And it's actually a stress test to your thinking, a meditative stress test that might be even harder than reading a philosophy book, which is to process, you know, several hours worth of tweets and understand what's happening in the world as evidenced by that. Well, I often have guests on Econ Talk who I don't agree with. I try to, in fact, have guests that I don't agree with. And sometimes listeners will say to me, uh, how could you be so calm when, when, when he was saying those horrible things? And I, I just, <laughs> I always respond. I said, Econ Talk, being the host of Econ Talk is a great builder of character. It teaches, it, it makes me uh, respond. I try to respond with, I don't always succeed, but I try to respond with grace to arguments I don't uh, agree with. And uh, I think it's made me a better person. So maybe I should have their mm-hmm. own podcast. <laughs> My guest today has been Venkatesh Rao. Venkat, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was lovely being here. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.